This morning we're going to consider the little horn, the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. Last time we looked at Daniel chapter 8, a couple of weeks ago or whatever it was, we saw that during the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw in a vision things that would surely come to pass. They would surely come to pass because it was a vision that came from God. First of all, he saw a ram with two horns, you may remember. A ram, two horns, one horn was higher than the other, that was significant. And that uh, that ram pushed westward, northward and southward so that no beasts might stand before him. In verse 20, we're clearly told that the two horns represented the kings of Media and Persia. In time to come, Darius the Mede conquered Babylon. So we're not left to play a guessing game there. The the ram, first of all, the ram with the two horns represented the Medo-Persian Empire. One horn higher than the other, well, the second horn that became higher came up last of all. That would have been the Persians. First of all, it was all about the Medes. The Medes conquered Babylon, but then... The Persians came along and uh, they rose to prominence, hence the two horns, one higher than the other. Whilst Daniel was considering the ram, he saw a male goat with a notable horn between his eyes. And we're told that the goat smote the ram and broke his two horns and there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped on him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So you've got this, um, the ram with his two horns, one higher than the other. We know that that's the Medes and the Persians. And then the goat comes along with one horn and he, he smites and he destroys the the, the 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 ram. In other words, that's the end of the Medo-Persian Empire. And indeed, verse 21 tells us that the goat represented the Greek Empire. Again, no guessing games here. It's the Greek Empire. And the great horn between his eyes was the first king. And this is where we can go to the history books. I don't often go to the history books when I'm reading from the scriptures, but it is helpful I don't claim to be a historian at all. I wish I had listened more uh, during history lessons at school. I think the only thing I did listen to at school was uh, in my maths lessons, like everyone here does, of course, or did. We all listen intently to maths and perhaps not a lot else. But anyway, according to the history books, the first king of the Greek Empire, that horn that proceeded from the, the... the goat was Alexander the Great. Whilst Daniel saw in his God-given vision, what he saw was fulfilled when Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. So far, so good, isn't it? We're looking at prophecy, but it's actually not too scary. In fact, one day I might even look at the book of Revelation with you. Give it a few years or so, perhaps. But we'll get there in the end. Last of all, what did we see in verse 8? Let's have a look at verse 8 and remind ourselves again. Verse 8. 
Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. He became very great. Waxed is became very great. He became very great. The lessons that we took away from our look at the first eight verses is that God rules the nations. He is in control. There are those who may not think he is and there are those who don't want to think he is because they've dismissed any thought of God. They try their hardest, don't they? They suppress the truth. They hold down the truth. God can't be in control because there is no God, but he is in control of everything. He sits apart, He sits above the circle of the earth, the earth, and he looks down and the, the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. That's us, like grasshoppers. And what else do we read in the scriptures? The kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Let's shake off any any accountability to God and to his laws. We don't want to know. What does the Lord do? He laughs. But then he speaks to them in his wrath and in his sore displeasure. But this is the God who is in control of everything. Mate, be in no doubt about it. And I, for one, thank God for that, that he is in control of everything. When you consider what's going on in this world, pretty awful. If your hand's not buried in the sand up to your ankles and you really do make a point of seeing what's going on in this world, I, for one, would despair if my faith was not in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what would make me despair even more is when I look inwardly at my own heart and I would think, this is really bad. Because I know what I... I what, what does the Bible say? Again, what saith the Scriptures? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And boy, don't I know it. But we have a God who is in control. Amen to that, eh? Yeah. So, God rules the nations. He is in control. He raises up mighty empires and he brings them to nothing. As was seen with the horns of the Medo-Persian Empire being broken and then the great horn of Alexander the Great being broken. And then what we looked at last time was finally, having looked at the the ram and the goat, we looked at a lamb. You, you don't find the lamb in chapter 8, but um, who is the lamb? The lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time came into this world as the sacrificial lamb. We looked at him. We shall now continue with our study of Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to look specifically at the little horn today. When we looked at chapter 8 last time, we didn't look at the little horn. But today we're going to focus on the little horn. And I want to read to you again chapter, uh, verses 8 through to 14. Now that you know that the focus is on that little horn, let's read verses 8 to 14 again. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great 
That's the, the, the Grecian Empire, the, the Greeks. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken, Alexander the Great, broken, and for, and for it came up four notable ones towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed or became exceeding great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the pleasant land. And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host, and of the stars to the ground, and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself, even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practised and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to the tr- to to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Okay, with God with God's guidance, let's see what we can understand from that passage. It was pointed out that Alexander the Great died at the tender young age of 32, according to the history books. And it was quite possibly from a fever. Isn't that something? That great warrior, uh, a warrior that um, other great uh, great people like Napoleon, Napoleon, they modelled themselves on Alexander the Great. And yet he was believed to have died from a fever at 32 years of age. His death was sudden and he had no heir or successor. However, that did not mark the end of the Greek Empire. Rather, it was divided up into four other empires or kingdoms, symbolised by the four notable horns that came up towards the four winds of heaven. The the first horn was broken by Alexander the Great and then four horns come up. Four kingdoms proceed from the Greek Empire and that can be seen in verse 8 that we've just seen or read. Verse 9 goes on to tell us that the little horn came forth from the four horns and it became exceeding great. Now this is something, I hope you're with me here, the first horn there was Alexander the Great, he gets smashed to pieces, he's gone, uh, dead and then four other horns come up from the Greek Empire, and then we're back to a a, a single horn coming up, proceeding from the four horns. As if to emphasise the significance of that little horn, much of chapter 8 describes its character and its evil works. For example, looking at verse 10 again, And it waxed great, it became great. The little horn became great, even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Really quite evil. We can can see that much straight away. Whilst the host of heaven can refer to the angelic host, 
we need to remember that the little horn was an earthly king who sprung from the Greek empire as such. The host of heaven doesn't refer to the angels in heaven, but it refers to the people of God. Verse 9 says that the little horn grew great. It became great towards the pleasant land. Well, that would be, that would appear to have been Israel, the pleasant land, Israel. Verse 11 speaks of him, the little horn, removing the daily sacrifice and desecrating the temple. Verse 12 speak, uh, tells us that he cast the truth to the ground. He's desecrated the temple. He's cast the truth to the ground. What might that be all about? Does it not speak of the destruction of the book of God's law? Verse 24 tells us that he shall destroy the holy people and that refers to the killing of the godly Jewish remnant. Remember, God has always had a remnant of believing people throughout history. And uh, that would have been the, 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 the destruction of Jews as a whole, but, but godly Jews as well. People who were trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who would one day come into the world. The history books give details of four empires that emerged from the Greek Empire, the four horns again, and one of those empires or kingdoms was the Seleucid Empire. The Seleucid Empire, which existed from 312 BC to 63 BC. Relevant to Daniel chapter 8 is one of the kings of the Seleucid Empire. We're just going to focus on one of those horns, uh, one of those kingdoms, the Seleucid Empire, and the, the king that arose from the Seleucid Empire, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. You may have heard that name, Antiochus Epiphanes. I don't, don't, I'm, not, I'm trying not to turn this into one big history list lesson, but these are significant names the Seleucid Empire and Antiochus Epiphanes. Not easy names to remember, is it? But uh, it's, it's well worth trying to remember them because they do figure greatly in what we're seeing here, the rise and the fall of various kingdoms. Antiochus Epiphanes broke down from a tradition of allowing the Jews to worship Jehovah. Instead, he launched a brutal attack on the Old Testament saints. He was a particularly brutal character. Let me just read this to you. Apparently during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jews were split between the Hellenists, the Greeks, who had adopted pagan Greek ways. So some of the Jews, they went, uh, they went all into, they, they, they became Greek in their ways, if you like, and pagan. And then there were those who remained faithful to the law of Moses. Supposedly to avoid a civil war between the two, vac the two factions, the Hellenists and the, the, the faithful Jews, um, Antiochus Epiphanes made a decree ordering all the Jews to worship the Greek god Zeus rather than Jehovah. In reality, he was not just trying to Hellenize all the Jews, but to totally eliminate all traces of worship 
of Jehovah, the, the only true God. Not surprisingly, there was resistance from those Jews who refused to conform to his demands. Already, if you're thinking about this, you can see an application for today. Those who refuse to turn away from the only true God and refuse to burn a li- just a little bit of incense to Caesar, Caesar or, or, or bow to the gods of this world. It does mean trouble. Guaranteed. Consequently, Antiochus Epiphanes raided and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by stealing its treasures, setting up an altar to the Greek god Zeus and sacrificing pigs on the altar. When the Jews expressed their outrage over the profaning of the temple, Antiochus responded by slaughtering a great number of Jews and selling others into slavery. It really was a terrible time for the Jews. He issued even more draconian decrees, performing the rite of circumcision was punishable by death and Jews everywhere were ordered to sacrifice to pagan gods and eat pig flesh. Apparently Antiochus Epiphanes ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death and the same number being sold into slavery. What I'm reading there, do you know, I don't know what your thoughts are about this, and you, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, wasn't, weren't things really bad in those days, really primitive, savage? Well, you know what? There is no reason whatsoever to think that in this case, history will not repeat itself. You would be very naive to think that history will not repeat itself, but we will consider that a little bit more in a while. Verse 23 describes the little horn as a king of fierce countenance. In other words, someone who, according to the Bible commentator John Gill, had no shame nor fear in him, who regarded neither God nor man, who committed the most atrocious crimes in the most public manner, and particularly was daring and impudent in his blasphemy against God and the true religion. And it may also signify that he was cruel, barbarous and inhuman, especially to the Jews, as his persecution of them abundantly proves. We have also seen that to be an an apt description of Antiochus Epiphanes. Also in verse 23, look at that, he's got, at the end of verse 23, understanding dark sentences that shall stand up. What does that mean? Verse 25, and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. So he understands dark sentences, causes craft to prosper through his policy also. 
what John's Gill commentary is, uh, I found it very helpful again. Concerning the king's understanding of dark sentences in verse 23, Gill, speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, said that it shows him to be shrewd and cunning, well-versed in wicked craft and policy. Do you know, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of our, our leaders today, I'll be honest with you. Let me just read that again and tell me if I'm wrong here, if I'm being unreasonable in thinking, this is, this is a description of the leaders of the world now. Gil, it shows him to be shrewd and cunning. You have to be shrewd and cunning to become a world leader. Well-versed in wicked craft and policy, he had the art of persuading and deceiving men. It was by deceit and cunning he got the kingdom from his nephew and by the wicked art of persuasion he was master of, he seduced many of the Jews to relinquish their religion and embrace heathenism. He knew how to get to people and to, to indoctrinate them. And he, he had them under his little finger by the sounds of it. He wasn't an idiot, was he? Far from it. Verse 25 tells us that he shall magnify himself in his heart and that he shall also stand up against the prince of princes. In other words, God. Again, that describes Antiochus Epiphanes and it describes a whole lot of leaders today. Standing up against God and magnifying themselves in their wicked hearts. Epiphanies actually means God manifest. How about that? So, Epiphanes was the first Seleucid king to have coins minted with the words on them declaring him to be divine. Let's have some application here. First of all, Daniel's vision of the little horn in chapter 8 had its fulfilment towards the end of the Old Testament age when he, when the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes cast down and stamped upon the Jews and he magnified himself declaring himself to be God manifest. For all of that his time was in God's hands as you can see in verse 14 there. Look at verse 14 again. He said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That's a little over six years and that spelt the end of Antiochus Epiphanes. Even though what Daniel saw in his vision concerning the little horn that sprung from the Greek empire was fulfilled towards the end of the Old Testament era, it has tremendous application for the New Testament church right up until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Jesus, who has said, in this world you will have tribulation. Throughout the church age, There were and there are little horns attacking the redeemed of God and setting themselves up as God on the throne of God, much like Antiochus Epiphanes did. Think of the Pope of Rome, for example. One of his titles is Holy Father. Holy Father, that's the name that Jesus called his father in in John chapter 17 
in his high priestly prayer. Holy Father is God. And yet the Pope has taken that title for himself. He's just one example. There are many, many more little horns who magnify themselves in their hearts and set themselves up as God. Something that we all do, actually, by the way, you know, we, we mustn't just single them out because what they, they're, they're just big examples of what is in each one of us. I, I, I would go as far as to say, without hesitation really, that anyone who is not trusting in Jesus, anyone who has not prostrated himself before the throne of God, is in fact his own God, ultimately. Deluded, deceived by his own wicked heart. Anyone who says there is no God, apart from being a fool, according to the scriptures, that person has set himself up as some kind of a God. Think about it. Throughout the church age, there were our little horns attacking the redeemed of God, setting themselves up, as I've said, the deceptive ways of the little horn will continue. And you know what? I believe my understanding of the scriptures is that they will, that the, this, what we see here will intensify. In other words, things will get worse. Because that's the nature of sin. Sin just gets worse and worse. It doesn't get any better. And it will just intensify until Jesus comes again in judgment. The fact is that in various parts of the world, Christians are being cast down, they are being stamped upon, they are being tortured and put to death as they suffer the reproach of their great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I will never take that image, that, that image in my mind, I've, I've said it so many times, the Coptic Christians in their orange jumpsuits on the seashore just before they were beheaded by ISIS thugs and you could see them praying and I always wonder what were they praying for what were they saying just before they had their heads removed that stuck with me were they praying that they would glorify God in death I don't know I don't know what about you though if it was your last moment if if you were in that situation where you're just about to be martyred because you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because you're a follower of Jesus, what would you pray about? Obviously you don't know, I don't know, but what do you think you would pray for? I would like to think that the whole experience would draw me closer to Jesus. Just as I've seen, when I've seen people dying in hospital, the saints of God in their deathbeds at hospital. And it's always been such a privilege for me to see those people. And I've almost been envious of them. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But when I've seen their fellowship with God in their dying moments, how would we respond if... The, 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 what we're seeing here in this passage comes to this little island 
May God be glorified in each one of us. Just looking back at verse 11, which speaks of the little horn removing the daily sacrifice and desecrating the temple. And also verse 12 that speaks of the destruction of the book of God's law. Those things are rife. They are really happening in so many church fellowships today in parts of the world. In certain parts of the world, you've got big problems if you even worship God anyway. Uh, And a Bible... You would not want, you would not walk along the road with a Bible in your arms, uh, under your arms. Because you would be arrested and you may well be put to death. But what about here on our little island? What about here? The Bible's being, or the Word of God being removed from the house of God. Well, I think it happens here on this island. There are churches where you won't find the Word of God being handed out, as it is here. And the most you might get is the odd verse being projected onto the wall. And a sermon delivered completely out of context with that verse that's on the wall. So it's happening, even here on this island, where people, the people of God, are being deprived of the word of God where people come to churches and instead of being fed the word of God, they are having their ears tickled with rubbish. Clever little anecdotes, funny little stories, a lot of nonsense. Stuff that will make them feel good and fuzzy, maybe, but nothing that will do them any eternal good. I think that's just as bad as living in a country where you can't have the Bible, where you can't go to church. How can it be any better to go to church when that church is nothing more than an entertainment, a place of entertainment? Useless. However, all is not doom and gloom because, for one thing, The temple of God is not a building made with bricks and stone. It is the body of Christ. Uh, It's not made with human hands. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the body of believers. That spiritual body consists of blood-washed, born-again Christians across the world. That one true, true church. It's a spiritual building. And Christians, wherever they may be in this world, they are all living stones fitted into that one spiritual building of which the Lord Jesus Christ is the head, if we think of it as the church. He is the foundation and the chief cornerstone, if we think of it as a a spiritual building. But in other words, he is everything and he holds everything together. And there's nothing that can change that. And as Jesus said, he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How wonderful is that? And how true that is. (laughs) And those who are members of that one body of Christ, of which he is head, or those, putting it another way, those who are 
living stones in the one spiritual building or let's even take it further, branches in the true vine, drawing on that grace, continually drawing on the grace of Jesus. They are safe and they are secure now and forevermore. They shall never perish. They are safe in his hand and in the hand of his Father. Last of all, as I'm coming to a close, in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, Luke speaks of another horn. We've been looking at the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he lasted so long and then that was it. It was goodbye, Antiochus Epiphanes. According to Luke chapter 1 and verse 69, God has raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. I wonder who that might be. Let me read it again. God has raised up an horn of salvation. Well, there's a big clue, isn't there? For us in the house of his servant David. And according to verse 32 and 33, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob for six years. Oh, it doesn't actually say six years. It says, he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's more like it, isn't it? And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And again, it's amen to that. It has to be amen and amen to all these wonderful truths concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, of course, Jesus at the cross. Jesus secured victory over the great enemies of sin, Satan and death. And may each one of you be people for whom Jesus is the horn of salvation from all your sins. Jesus, who has given you everlasting life through faith in his self-sacrifice at Calvary's cross. Amen.